Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today for our series on women in the judiciary is Judge Raylene Keatley, a permanent judge from the Gauteng Division of the High Court, who is currently serving as acting judge for the Supreme Court of Appeal. In opening today's program, I'd like to start with a quote from Constance Baker Motley, who said, something which we think is impossible now is not impossible in another decade, which for me gives a, a sense of doing something today to lay the groundwork for the future and, and this promise of change. So welcome to the show, Judge Keely. Thank you very much. And thank you for hosting me. Judge Keatley, you've got a very interesting background. Before you practiced law professionally, you pursued an academic career with roles at the University of Cape Town, as well as University of the Witwatersrand, where you were an associate professor and assistant dean of the School of Law. You hold your BA, LLB, and LLM degrees. Please tell us, first of all, what triggered your interest to pursue law? Well, the popular answer in our country is is usually, you know, if one wants to look good, um, is usually to say my, a, a quest for justice. I was born a white South African, so I didn't, I wasn't born with an overt sense, should I say, that there was injustice. Um, having been born in 1961, the sort of peak of apartheid. But as I got older and was exposed to really what was in fact going on in the world, I have to say that it became apparent to me, particularly from my university years, that there was great injustice and that lawyers could do a lot to help overcome the injustice in our country. But I had by that stage already decided to become a lawyer. I'd enrolled for a BA with law subjects. And I think from I was of that generation where um, there were really a few professions one could do. I don't come from a family where any of my ancestors were professionals. In fact, I was the first person in my extended family to, to, to go to university and get a university degree. So I didn't follow an uncle or a father into law. I've got a curious mind and I really like to know how things work and to understand things. And I like to puzzle things out. And so I suppose my generation looking at what careers one could follow, um, law seemed to me to be the obvious fit. I had a, a wobble in third year of my BA when I thought I might want to be a psychologist instead. And at the last minute, I stuck to law and it was definitely the right decision. I think you know whether you meant to do law. And sometimes you go into practicing the law after studying and you either know or don't know. And I think it all just came together. And I really did make the right choice. It is the right profession for me. It's so good to hear when you have these serendipitous moments that you've pursued the right direction and it works out for you. Because yes. so often you, you hear people going one direction and then they, they chop and change. And it's common in law. It's It's so common. You know, people think that lawyering, and I use the word lawyering in the broadest sense, because of course, there are many facets of being a lawyer, but 
they think lawyering is one thing and it's from the TV and or they see lawyers on television standing up for people's rights or they read books about lawyers, novels. It's it's not like that. Um, and sometimes it's not like that in that it's very much more boring. But in other ways, in fact, you can be a really good lawyer who would never think that they want to go into court. And the point is you don't have to. Law offers such a huge scope for you to be a lawyer without necessarily donning a robe and and having the confidence to stand up in court. Um, I always say the law degree is a really good general degree. You know, you can move into anything. You can move into NGO work. You know, the corporate world is full of lawyers who don't practice as lawyers. So don't give up. Don't drop your degree because you're not enjoying family law or whatever it is, finish it and then your path is open and see what bites at the end of the day. True. And with anything that you study, there are always going to be transferable skills, whether you're in your space or not. Yes, yes. Having had some personal experience in the academic world as well as practice, albeit not in law, they are polar opposites in Mm. terms of the work that you do. What motivated your transition from academia to practice? Well, I I actually started in practice. So I finished my LLB and then I did my articles. Um, And it it was, this is Women's Month. So I'm focusing, I'm going to go a little bit off, off the topic, but address the topic. So I finished my LLB in 1984. I was in the top three of my class at the University of Natal, Peter Maritzburg, as it then was. And I only got one offer of articles. Um, Women then were seen as someone who would come in, do articles, maybe practice for a few years, and then all the effort the firm had put in would be wasted because, of course, all women just marry and have babies and sit at home. And I was asked in some of my interviews, when do you intend starting a family? You know, I wasn't even married um, I had no intention of of starting a family at all. But nonetheless, I felt it was important to do the articles. So I did. I got an offer from a very small firm of attorneys in Cape Town, which I've never regretted. I, I did everything. I appeared in criminal court. I drafted wills. I, I did absolutely everything. And then after doing articles and staying on at the firm into the next year, I was extremely fortunate to be given an attorney's fidelity fund bursary towards overseas study. And my then boyfriend, he's now my husband of over 30 years, and I applied to Cambridge in the UK to do an LLM degree. And I think we got 30,000 rand, which was an enormous amount in those days. And it paid, I think, half of the tuition and what we would need to live on. So on our little article clerk salaries, we sort of saved for our air tickets. Banks didn't want to give us, lend us the money because we were going overseas and why would we come back? And eventually we got a bank loan, not from one of the mainstream banks at the time. And off I went to Cambridge and did an LLM. And I've always loved, I love law as a 
subject. I love the engaging with the analytics of it. And so when I got to Cambridge and re-engaged with academic study, that sort of lit a spark in me. And I applied for a job in academia at UCT and was lucky enough to come in at the lowest level, junior lecturer, and loved the teaching. And I loved the, the academic study. And so I, you know, I loved being in academia. But after a few years, I found it quite limiting. Because, you know, the ideas of law that you engage with in academia are not very close to how those legal rules and principles work in practice. And then I wouldn't have moved out, but I got an offer from what was being set up in the National Prosecuting Authority at the time. A new act had been passed called the Prevention of Organized Crime Act, and they set up a unit called the Asset Forfeiture Unit, which is going strong, you know, today um, still. Well, it's still short. I mean, it's growing in, in strength from strength to strength. And they were looking for lawyers because they were looking at civil legal mechanisms to forfeit criminal properties, tainted assets. And I was just fascinated by the the fact that this was a new law, it was completely different. Nothing had ever been tried like it in South Africa at that time. The, you know, the UK had laws to that effect, the US did, but we were the first country in Africa to do it. And so I, I, I just thought this was such an opportunity to engage again in the practice of law, but with the added benefit of understanding and helping to develop this new asset forfeiture law that was incorporated in chapters five and six of the Prevention of Organized Crime Act. So I left academia and moved to the National Prosecuting Authority, um, the uh, asset forfeiture unit, and was in at the, the, the coal face of that. And that gave me a good balance because it wasn't just common or garden old law practice. It was being there, having your ideas taken forward um, and to court for the development of the law. So I've always, if I look back on it, I've always tried to find a mix between the two, um, not straight academia and not, when I say common or garden practice, I'm not disparaging that at all. And it was it was a privilege to be able to, to practice and, and sort of help to develop a law. Mm. That, I think, is why... I've had always had a hunch that I would enjoy judging. Wow. Because it's the absolute balance of the two. For me, being a judge is my most I'm going to use bad language, not bad language, but not good. It's my most best fit. <laughs> you know, it it really is what I've enjoyed doing the most. In the realm of judging, you make incredibly tough mm. decisions. There's there's always a winner and there's always a loser. Mm. Can you tell us about some of the memorable cases that you've presided over? I'm going to answer your question and not answer it at the same time. The hardest courts that we are in as judges are probably family courts, and you don't get seminal judgments there, very seldom. Very often you are dealing with urgent matters where the parents very often are fighting over the children. 
And those are the hardest cases to be in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a judge in the, in the Gauteng division, we have a special family court. It's, it's not a separate court. It's really a family court role that allows family court matters to be channeled more quickly. Um, and then, you know, as judges, we, we sit in that court once a term or twice a term or once every two terms, we all rotate into it and out of it. And those are hard courts because you're dealing with people. A lot of the, the legally difficult matters are, you know, when, when you're talking about a, a, whether a, an ex-president should go to back to prison because, uh, you know, he was released on parole. That's very topical at the moment. Those are incredibly difficult socially, politically, judicially, and legally. But those aren't the only difficult courts that we deal with. Courts are very much um, for the people and even the high court. We are close to people when we do a lot of our judging, particularly in the family court, in urgent court, where we have burial disputes, for example. And, And this is, again, obviously family is where women are very much involved and they very often don't have the the scale of finances that allow them to litigate to the extent that it's mostly the the male partner who is able to litigate, you know, has more funds to litigate. Not always, but mostly. And and that's hard to deal with. So almost you as the judge have to do justice and you're the upper guardian for minors. So you've got to try and look after the interests of the children. So we don't necessarily give seminal judgments there, but you realize how important your role as a judge is for people's lives. And and I think there's a huge responsibility there. And then we get burial disputes in the urgent court. Um, Often, 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 often. There's a a, a report, I think, in the business day today about one of my colleagues who recently handed down a burial judgment. And the, the editorial in the business day seemed quite surprised that his judgment was full of compassion. Well, <laughs> when you're dealing with a burial dispute, you know, often it will be a man has died, the patriarch of the family has died, and there might be a wife in a rural area. I'm thinking of one of the cases I had. And there's a partner, a well-established partner in the urban area, and their families in both. And the patriarch dies, and there's a clash between culture and tradition and and the more modern family here. And those are such difficult decisions to make, and they've got to be made urgently. The burial can't wait. And so I think people would be surprised that all of our judgments there in those cases are naturally full of compassion. You know, we really have to be Solomonic and to try to work out a solution. And then there are the the difficult judgments where it's just legally and politically sensitive. They can be career-limiting decisions we have to make, particularly in South Africa today where it's well known that that there's lawfare, as they call it, going on, you know, where courts are, are called in to deal with what are essentially very often political disputes behind the scenes. But you just have to face it all without fear or, or favor and and do your best within the ambit of the law. I don't know if that answers your question. It sounds like no two days are ever the same. No, no, absolutely. And some of it's, 
you know, some of judging can be drudge work. When I say drudge work, it doesn't mean the cases aren't important for the parties, but it's, it's slogging through. You know, we have to do it. And then your next week, this is how our division works. You know, one week you're in in a court that's dealing with, in a sense, administrative orders that you're giving out to make sure so that trials can, can run on, you know. So it's an important part of the role we do just to make sure that the civil trial role doesn't get left behind, that cases actually are ready to run. And so one week we'll be in, in an administrative type court and the next week we'll be in urgent court where we might get, as my um, sister, Judge Opperman, last week had to, had to rule on um, the Alex Mafia case, you know, which is, um, you know, gets media attention. Some days in one week are like the other, but our weeks are never the same. But that's that's the beauty of it. I mean, that's what I love about the law. I love being stretched. I love every aspect of the law. So for me, personally, I enjoy that about being a judge. It sounds very dynamic. These are all issues that matter to people yes. and, and affect yes. their, their day to day. Moving away directly from, from the work that you do, I wanted to ask you about aspects of, of networking. And in particular, I noticed that you're a member of the South African chapter of the International Association of Women's Judges. Yes. And when I looked at the international website, it indicated several core values being recognizing the fundamental importance of gender equality, using human rights laws as a vehicle to integrate women in society, ensuring access to equal justice for everyone, respecting and valuing cultural diversity, and exercising judicial leadership boldly, independently, and creatively. Yes. Please tell us a little about your involvement with the association. I'm an ordinary member, so I don't hold any office in, in the organization. My exposure within that organization extends to my involvement in some of the programs. So, um, one of the programs we continue to run is a mentoring program for law students. Um, they can shadow judges and magistrates and um, use them as mentors um, to the extent that they find it useful. So I've been involved in that. My experience, it's been sometimes successful and sometimes not. Um, a lot depends on the mentee. So that's one of the things we do. There's also a focus within our South African chapter nationally on education for members. So we have an annual conference at which papers are presented and we as judges are um, encouraged to, um, you know, to present papers. So that's part of the shared learning amongst judges. And I, I must say that, well, I should explain that the organization covers both judges and the magistracy. So, you know, that for us, for judges is really interesting because we don't have much to do with magistrates outside of the association. So we're working alongside them in projects or at conferences um, and that is, there's no judges being more superior to 
magistrates within the association. We're all members and we all take each other seriously, which I think is really important. Um, many of the members obviously are women and there are increasingly more women judges being appointed. The magistracy is very strong um, with women magistrates. And then we, we also engage with our brothers. You know, it's not a, a, a women's only association. Men are very welcome, which I think is critical. I think they learn a lot about getting insight from us as women judges and magistrates. The networking side of it, it I, I, you know, I'm not a networker. I just I find it difficult to network. Let me call it rather a sisterhood. I think is my experience of the association. Nice and expression. They, yeah, there's a real sisterhood among members. And we learn about each other. We we learn to get to know each other, particularly at the conferences. Um, you know, we come from all over the country. And judges and magistrates in the Northern Cape, their experience is completely different to someone from Johannesburg. You know, you learn what it means to be a judge or a magistrate. In So we take for granted that we will have paper, that we will have lights in our courts and so on. And in, in more rural provinces, that's not always the case, particularly for magistrates. So there's a that, that sisterhood of learning who people are and knowing who people are. I must say, for me, you know, I'm in my eighth year as a judge. There are many judges who are more senior to me and who are in higher courts permanently, like the ACA. And so through that association, you also are able to engage with your senior sisters. You know, all, there was always great social interconnection at those through the association as well. Yeah. I have to say the other thing I have found through the association is just and not only through the association, but but being on the bench at this point where our judiciary, despite criticism to the contrary, our judiciary is hugely transformed from what it was even a few years ago. And I have found that to be one of the most enriching experiences for me as a white South African. It's really brought home to me how lucky we are in this country to be so multifaceted, multilinguistic, multicultural. And that strength, not only in the judiciary, you know, in the association itself, that that sort of multi-dimensional facet of who we are as people in this country is it's it's a real microcosm of that. And I I mean I just find that so uplifting in so many ways. Diversity is so important. And when we think mm. about the roles that you play, being able mm. to well, having a, a almost a, a representative aspect, you mentioned the word microcosm of the judiciary representing the country. You, then you've got these different nuances that people mm. really understand. Absolutely. And and to have that empathetic view of you know of, of what the people are experiencing. Yes. And it teaches you a lot as a judge, doing those burial cases as a white South African, you know, really learning to listen, to understand, to step into someone else's cultural shoes. It's not about color. It's really about culture 
and respect for that culture. And so um, it's, it's a privilege. It really is a privilege to be able to do that. I think you have a, a very rewarding job. I do. <laughs> With us being in the month of August, a period where traditionally South Africa celebrates Women's Month and reflects on the gains that women have made, as well as the challenges which we still need to overcome. This year's theme is women's socioeconomic rights and empowerment, building back better for women's improved resilience. As a judge, um, seeing that people's rights are upheld or mm. as well as infringed, how do you interpret this year's theme? Um, I always find these themes very difficult because they seem to be saying so much. And at the end of the day, you know, what really are they saying? The focus on socioeconomics, it's a challenge for judges because, of course, we we can't fix the socioeconomics of what's going on. I think the most we can be is sensitive to what's going on underneath. And then what was the second part of it? Building back better. Building back better for women's improved resilience. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing women are is resilient. And I think it's quite a fitting theme because South African women are known for their resilience. We know, you know, you strike a woman, you strike a rock. That's, you know, a theme that was picked up in the march to Pretoria and has continued to, to surface where women have really taken up that challenge. And so I think it is fitting. We know we're near. Can I say women also suffer the most socioeconomically? Usually they're left with the children, um, whether it's their own or the second generation children. And so they feel the brunt, I think, of the socioeconomic disadvantages that there are in our country, undoubtedly. Um, and suppo I suppose, you know, the theme speaks to not being worn down by that, recognizing those problems exist, but also recognizing that through the strength of the proven strength of women, we ourselves can help to search for solutions, can look for solutions to that. Um, that's my interpretation of the theme. It might be, it might not be everyone's interpretation of the theme, but um, you know, we we need to take charge of our own destiny, and we can, as women, we can not alone, but through helping each other. As a woman in your field, you need to be aware of what you can do mm. to you know your little bit towards that better end. Following on with that thought and thinking about your own environment, what would be some of the areas that you feel you could contribute to to help uh, propel women further forwards? You know, I suppose as a citizen, never mind you're a judge, one can get involved in programs outside of your professional life. So, you know, whether they're through your church or or through your community, or whatever, in your own personal sphere, whether it's helping someone's child to go to school, or in, in that small way. In the courtroom, I think one has to be thoroughly alert to the need to be sensitive 
to what might be going on underneath what is presented as the legal dispute that you are tasked with trying to resolve one way or the other. And there are quite a few things judges can do. You know, we we can, for example, this might be a minor example, but but we can always ask the bar to identify an advocate who can act pro bono for someone who really can't afford it and whose socioeconomic rights or whatever rights they may be can't properly be litigated because there they are in person and you can see the need for them to have a lawyer. So judges can do a lot in that small way. That's on an individual basis. Um, And then I think, for example, the South African chapter, the International Association of Women Judges, we do get involved in programs that are designed more broadly, more civil society type of programs. So I think there are ways one can do it. Most directly, I think, in my job as a judge, A, would be in how you manage your court, how sensitive you are, perhaps for the need for someone to get legal assistance, or just to try and understand. I'll give you an example of where, as judges, we are faced with sort of the sharp end of socioeconomic collapse in in one family's life. And we saw it particularly around COVID and thereafter. People take out a mortgage bond to purchase a property, and it can be a very modest property. They take out a mortgage bond when they have a job. Um, Some people have the view that that banks are vultures and so on. Banks aren't. It's a commercial agreement you enter into. And then what happens, and particularly over COVID, people lost their jobs, and they really couldn't keep paying their mortgage bond. And so ultimately, the bank has to come to court to foreclose. And, you know, in terms of the practice that's developed through the courts under the Constitution, there has to be personal service on on a home loan debtor. And very often, the debtor will come to court and will be understanding of what the bank is trying to do and ask just for a little bit more time. And I just find there, I can't put my hand in my pocket and pay or say, let's go, let's set up a GoFundMe page for you for the rest. But what I can do is show compassion. I can show compassion to that individual in the court. I can express that compassion by saying, I understand you're in a difficult position. The bank is also in a commercially difficult position. So, you know, sometimes one can work out, you know, the bank will come to the party and give an extra few months. Otherwise, you you just order an extra few months. So, you know, that's the sharp end of, and it's common, that's that's commonly in the high court where we see socioeconomic distress playing out in the courts. You know, it's it's the same as when you stop at a stop street, I might be digressing, and there are three, three tattered people who clearly aren't choosing to be begging at a street corner. They're just wanting whatever coins you can give them. Even if I don't have coins with me at the time, acknowledge the person. Don't avoid eye contact. Acknowledge. It's that I think we just have to be aware, all of us as human beings, that however poor you are, 
And however dire your circumstances, everybody deserves to be treated with dignity. And I think if we as judges can just do that in the work we do, it can have quite a profound effect. I think in today's conversation, you've given so many perspectives. You've shared some very real instances of, as you say, being at the sharp end of socioeconomic hardships that so many people in, in this country and, and probably around the world are, are experiencing and, mm. and facing. Mm. And yet the values that you bring of, of compassion, of dignity, of justice and fairness to be able to, to serve the, the, the parties um, that have, have brought the matters to you. Can I add something? I'm known to be quite a hard judge. And I will be I will be hard on practitioners who haven't prepared their cases, for example. And, and so it's not it's not not always easy for judges to summon that compassion. I'm not a saint, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not a saint. But in those cases where clearly, you know, there is that need, we just have to summon it. You know, even if we've had the most dreadful day in court. And we've had 55 counsel who've really made us, you know, so angry because they haven't got their papers in on time and so on and so forth. It's hard. You've got to bring yourself back and remember, here's a, per, a, a litigant in person. Pull it back. Show the compassion and dignity. I just didn't want you to get the idea that I'm a saint. <laughs> uh, well, human, human faces have got multiple sides. Yeah. I'm known to not take nonsense, I'm told. Yeah. I think that's a good skill to have. I was asking someone the other day, and I, I'm, I'm digressing here before we wind up, but I mean, she was talking about some trial cases that it, they just go on and on. Yes. And on. And, you know, and then, you know, counsel is late or you've got an urgent and you've said we will hear this matter at X time and they saunter in and show no respect and just expect that the court's going to have waited for them. It can be, it, it can be testing. It can be testing. Yeah. Yeah. Judge Kidley, thank you for giving us a window into your world. As we wrap up today's conversation in celebration mm. of Women's Month, please share a few words of inspiration or, or motivation for girls and women who are listening to us. I referred earlier to, to you know, the, the struggle slogan, you strike a woman, you strike a rock. Utinti abafazi, utinti mbokoto, I think is the, is the, um, the original. I just have always thought that that speaks so much to us as women and, and young women and girls in South Africa. Just, we are strong, all of us, you know, women, are strong in their core because we are regarded as not being, um, not saying as strong as men. We, we, you know, the the what the softer sex, the whatever. I mean, we've been discriminated against forever, and a lot of it is 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 unthought through discrimination. It's a subtle discrimination that that we face. And I think if you can just hold on to your strength as a woman, which which you can build through facing whatever adversity 
um, that you may find in your own way. I've always thought if you can direct your strength inwards. Um, and so what? So what if we cry when we're angry? Don't feel bad about that. Just know that I'm crying because I'm angry, because I'm talking to someone who doesn't see my worth. But that shouldn't mean that I don't have my worth and shouldn't recognize it for myself. So self-reliance, um, self-reliance, self-belief in your own strengths and believing in your substance, finding what your substance is, because it's it's knowing what your substance is that can drive you forward and help you to make those right choices and, and keep on that path. Whether your substance is baking, you know, if that's what makes you happy and you can see a, a, a gap, a commercial gap for that, believe in it and, and take it forward. Or like me, believing my substance would be law and a legal path and it's worked out for me, but you've got to have faith in it. Just have to have that inner faith, inner recognition and the, the belief in your self-worth. Thank you for that great message. It's been a pleasure hosting you today and happy Women's Month. Thank you, and you too. And and thank you so much for doing this initiative. Um, and and go well and, and good luck with the rest of it. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity. And today we have been talking to Judge Raylene Kiki, who is a permanent judge of the Gauteng Division of the High Court and is currently serving as acting judge for the Supreme Court of Appeal. 